Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast, and um, we've been doing a short series on the Future Ready Research, a book uh, that came out in conjunction with ACSI and Cardis, um, partly because I had the opportunity to be a part of it, but then it was really fun. And I think back to all the visits and all the, the different things that we did, it was really pretty awesome. And so I've had the opportunity to talk with one of the authors, one of the sponsors of it, but then, you know, really, I, you know, and I'll say this, probably not only the lead author, but the, the lead writer and researcher, but then also a great friend who really drives a lot of this work and then, and then invites me into the fun work of it all. So I'm with Lynn Swanner today. And Lynn, I just want you to jump in on this Future Ready book. What what was give us a little bit of the picture behind it of like where the impetus for the idea came from and what the hopes were on the front end. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Eric. We always have so much fun. I think the last time I was on the podcast was talking about leadership lessons with Lasso and being an elephant. So it's great to be it's great to be back. Always a lot of fun and um, getting ourselves into some trouble. But so just the background of how the book got started. You know, we. Uh, ACSI received some generous funding from uh, the McClellan Family Foundation, the Christian Educational Charitable Trust. We also got funding from a private family foundation, and we really want to look at financial and structural sustainability in Christian schools. So that's like the official story. Um, the the back story is, though, in many ways, this is a follow up to the mind shift work. You know, people who read that book and who followed the project often said they wish we had gone deeper into the financial and sustainability questions facing schools. That book covered a lot of ground. That project covered a lot of ground and people wanted to go deeper. So, uh, you know, we partnered with Cardis, as you mentioned, to do the sustainability study. And Cardis also did the book design. So I know you and Matt Lee were voting for drones and had even mocked up something that looked very scarily military-like uh, instead of paper airplanes. But I just want to go on record and say I think the Cardis team did an amazing job. I know you do too. And it's really a beautifully designed book. Um, you know, and in addition to the follow-up with MindShift, I think for, for all of us, this study was also born out of a frustration. And it was this frustration of this idea of blocking and tackling in Christian schools, that if we we just do blocking and tackling, if we just do a limited set of operational things really, really well, our schools are guaranteed to thrive. And we've talked about things like good marketing, development, enrollment management, you know, policy governance for the board. And these are super important. And in fact, I'd be willing to bet if a school doesn't do those things well, that's like a surefire ticket to failure, right? <laughs> so you need to be doing those things well. And in fact, none of the 11 schools and networks in our study actually threw these things out. In fact, they, they do actually do them very well. But I think our frustration was realizing that, you know, blocking and tackling will win you the game if you're on an NFL regulated field. So in other words, if it's the same size, if it's level, if it's predictable, right, all the equipment is standard. And the reality is just that Christian schools today are not playing on that type of field. You know, the educational field looks less like, uh, you know, my my whole family um, are UGA graduates. And so on Saturday, we watched what happened up in Athens, right? Looks, I was actually annoyed because the end zones are not a different color. So for somebody who doesn't follow football, it's like, wait a minute, did they get a touchdown, right? So that that was even for me, I noticed that there was a difference from what's normally there, right? 
But like our educational field doesn't look like that football field in Athens. It looks like an MC Escher painting, right? Or if you saw the movie Inception, you remember those dream sequences, right? Like where things folding over itself. And, and so if we think we can block and tackle our way out of the human resource challenges, right? The attrition that we're seeing, the, the lack of uh, people interested in going into education. If we think we can block and tackle our way out of enrollment challenges that are historical, you know, we've got this quote unquote COVID bump, but you know, there's more educational options than ever before. You know, if we think we can block and tackle our way out of the reach challenges we've had with unreached students and families in our communities, like that's just not going to happen. So the the message, and I think the frustration was, yeah, keep blocking and tackling, but realize we're on a more complex playing field that's also going to require things like taking calculated risks, you know, working with partners, uh, resourcing creatively and reimagining structures. And those are all actually chapter titles in the book. And we're so blessed because we get to share those stories of how Christian schools are actually doing that in real time. So, so in this, you know, as you kind of give us that backstory and it's super helpful even for me to hear again, because it even brings up new lessons or new wonderings, even now that it's the book is out there, especially since we started it prior to COVID um, and prior, you know, we started the research right before the shutdown happened. And so, you know, all those types of things, but that's maybe a different question for a different time. I'm wondering, like, what would be your encouragement as maybe a leader, a board member or an educator or just just a team of people sit down? Like, what would be your encouragement? Say, hey, use this book in this way. Yeah, it's a great question. I think one frustration that I failed to mention, which we talk about in the book, was just that there's some technical solution out there. And if we just find it, you know, we'll we'll be fine. Uh, and really saying, no, these are adaptive level issues that every school is going to have to wrestle with um, on their own. And so I, I really enjoyed the appreciative inquiry framework we used. We did also a survey of all the schools, so it was mixed methods. But, you know, that qualitative component really enabled us to get into the stories of these schools and leaders. And stories matter. You know, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell each other, and whose story are we in? Like, we think about the, the, the narrative arc of scripture, right? What is the story? And we were able to go deep in to understand why, the why behind what these schools were de- doing, and not just the how or what they did, right? Because we can't always replicate the how, the how or the what, like mergers, third source income, the other things we looked at. But when we really were able to look at the why, I think that's where those lessons that really taught us and told us how the what and the how actually came came out. And I think, in fact, to a school, I think the schools in our study without their why, we would probably not have seen much innovation at all. So, you know, just again, every school, their why drives the what and the how. Just to give some really quick examples, um, and a couple of these I think got mentioned in some of your other podcasts, because we have 11, which, you know, if you want to know all 11, read the book. But here are just some quick examples, like Chattanooga Christian School, um, it was out of space on their main campus. So they partnered with local churches to develop, I think they have three micro schools, but they didn't just do that. Their why behind that was a desire to reach even more students. And they wanted to diversify in terms of the student populations that they reach. Right. And on top of that, they have steel buildings throughout their campus and um, versus sort of these really expensive brick and mortar schools. And if, you know, we were on their campus, it's got this cool cutting edge look. And there's even some pictures in the book but their cost is significantly lower for these buildings so they can invest those dollars directly into reaching students. So again, it's that why is driving the decisions they make. 
The other one I'd mentioned is just uh, the Christian School Association of Greater Harrisburg. And this was basically a merger and acquisition between two smaller schools in Pennsylvania. And their why was they had a vision for joining together. They had similar missions and they essentially thought that they could each be stronger together achieving those missions together than they could apart. And so they formed this kind of Christian school district. They share back in office functions. They share senior leadership, instructional technology, even professional development. And that's even though the two schools really maintain their own identity, like the two schools still have their own names. They have uh, their own uniforms, their own school colors. Uh, so there's that sense of, you know, we are a district, but there's still that that sense of um, identity for each of the schools. And their why was really to become stronger together and achieving that similar mission. And they've done that. And both schools are actually financially in a much better position today than they were than they ever were when they were apart. And that that story just repeats over and over right throughout the book. And I think that, you know, the encouragement of to schools is really to start with your why. And I think a secondary encouragement is our why is not just our mission statement or what's on the walls, right? We talk about this in the Flourishing Together book. Your why is more along the lines of what Jamie Smith talks about. You are what you love, Mm -hmm. right? Your why is this, the things you want, your desires, your loves, those shape everything that we do. And we ask in the book, you know, what is it that your school loves? And that sounds like a really bizarre question to ask of an organization, right? Like we ask that of a person, but- Whatever the school loves, right, like whatever its highest organizational values are, those will shape the decisions leaders make, that the school community makes. It shapes the risks they're willing to take and and also not to take. And so I think ultimately the encouragement for schools and for leaders is to be very, very clear on your why, not just what's in your mission statement, but what you love, what you value, Uh, And then ask how you can achieve that into the future with all the changing market and conditions that private schools face. So last question, right? You know, as you've had the opportunity now to use the book with some groups and you've had the opportunity to kind of step in this place. It may be just one of two things and you can take it either way. What are the questions that you're hearing people ask? Or what are the questions that are generating? Are there a question or two or a couple of questions that are generating like some significant conversation to go deeper? Yeah. So I'll actually take it in a third direction because okay. you're going to be like, you know, what, what was it like? A, what were the two Ted Lasso options? Yeah, lion it's or the panda. panda, the lion, and you and choose I'm the like, elephant. And I chose the elephant, right? So I'm going to, you know me at this point, I'm going to, I'm going to go a different direction. So I mean, I think we're at the beginning of of this process. You know, the book has now been mailed to to 2,300 schools in the U.S. Uh, you know, we're we're starting to get it out there, and um, I I've had the opportunity now to workshop this with about 30 schools uh, in small groups, and it's been really really interesting to see. Um, and so, because the case stories in the book are are so rich, so I sort of want to take that third route and say, what are the what are the questions that as as schools are reading this book, as leaders are, are reading this book, which I hope they're not doing on their own because it's not designed to be uh, read individually, but you know to have a team, your board. Uh, in fact, even I think two or three endorsements on the book say get, get your board involved because this is not something school leaders can can do on their own. You need to have uh, your community involved, your board involved, but. As you're reading these these case studies, you know, what are some of the questions that I actually use with teams? 
And, and just some questions, you know, I, I will say, you know, in a few words, explain the innovation, innovative financial and structural model and how that model came about. And that seems like a pretty simple question, but the how the model came about is really interesting to watch leaders and school teams try and say, all right, they're actually antecedents to this, right? This merger didn't fall out of the sky. You know, this this third source income didn't fall out of the sky, this new financial model. What were the antecedents? And then do those resonate with us or not? You know, the question of how does the model relate to or align with the school's mission? So again, connecting the case study to the mission against the why. What does the model accomplish for the school's mission the school couldn't accomplish either partly or fully if it wasn't in place? And this is asking the what does the school gain question, right? So what risks did they, they take that enabled them to grow their mission in their school? We talk about opportunity cost in the book, you know, that really we're in a double jeopardy time, right? We, we risk if we change, we risk if we stay the same. And so we talk about calculated risk as a way through that because you're in a double jeopardy, you're going to get hit with one or the other. So how do you navigate through that? Um, you know, in what ways did the model shape or reshape the school's culture? So this is really to understand those cultural elements and the impact. Um, what school factors do you think helps in implementing this model? The people, the resources, the mindset. And this question is really geared to uncover what's, again, what are those preconditions, those antecedents um, that enable the innovation? And I think this is really important because, you know, schools cannot replicate one for one what other schools are doing. You know, you can't take something that came, grew in the soil here and transplant it 100% into another school. But the conditions, the leadership approaches, the mindset, the resources, the partnerships, those can all be cultivated within a different school setting that can then lead towards innovation in that context. And then finally, you know, the question of what are one or two takeaways lessons learned for our school in our context. You know, I've done a lot of idea boards and whiteboarding with schools around what does this actually mean for our school? And, um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of folks would rather have a list of 50 things to do, but this book doesn't provide that, but it provides those really, really rich um, case studies of all types of schools, right? One of the things that actually you, and I will answer your original question, what are people surprised about or what are they, um, what are they pointing out? it's a diverse group of schools. I mean, we've got schools of all different kinds of membership, size, location, resources, and the fact that there are some common themes across all of them is, is worth exploring. So before we finish, you already kind of gave the examples on the front end, but, but give a shout out, and you don't have to necessarily tell us why, but just give us a shout out to one of the schools that you say, hey, you know what, learn more about this one because I didn't know much about it or I discovered some really beautiful things about it. Yeah, I could shout out so many of them. It's so hard for me to do, Eric. It's like it's like picking your favorite child. I, just, just give me really one you didn't know about before that was I'll really intriguing afterwards. I'll tell you one that I had heard about that shocked me when I'd heard about it. And when I went there and saw it, I was, uh, it was amazing to have a chance to see. And this is probably, um, I bet not many listeners have heard of this and that would be Valley Christian schools in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, you know, it started out as, uh, a school in the, in the mid seventies. It was, uh, uh, started by a church. And the pastor had a vision. There's we actually have a newspaper article from the from the late 70s where the pastor wanted that school to 
be available to you, all the kids from, from the city. And what they had over time was more that it was serving the kids in the church, you know, sort of more of a, of a white middle-class to, to upper middle-class um, uh, population. 2010 rolls around and they decide they're going to build a high school. Well, they build a high school. And by this point, all the people affiliated with the church and most of the people in Youngstown who could afford private Christian education were out in the suburbs. Nobody wanted to send their kids to a high school that is in Youngstown, Ohio, right? And so um, they were in they were in in, in some trouble because they needed to fill the high school. And it was this moment to hear the the board talk about this and to hear the leaders say where you know that the parable of the banquet that Jesus talks about, where everyone's invited, right, but no one comes. And Jesus says, "Go out to the highways and the byways, and so that my table may be may be full." And right at the same time, there was a school choice program in Ohio that became available. And they just went for it. And almost overnight, <laughs> their school had looked one way. And almost the next day, they had filled their school with all these kids who could not afford Christian education. They went from essentially, it's a longer story than this, but they went from essentially a covenant model to almost like an open admission. I mean, it took a while to get there. But all of a sudden, God opened this opportunity for hundreds and hundreds of kids in, in urban Youngstown to receive a high quality Christian education and, and so I had heard about the school. I mean, I think to, to many Christian schools, this sounds like a nightmare in the sense of overnight, we're going to change our student population. Overnight, we're going to lose what is familiar to us. You know, do we even exist as we did? Why would we even bother existing if we don't look exactly like we look today? And this school just said, this is about educating kids um, in Jesus's name. And this opportunity is in front of us and we're going to take advantage of it. Talk about a huge risk. And then as they're sort of digging through, they're finding out that actually that was the founder's intent was for them to reach these diverse groups of students. So, I mean, it's a really, they've had their, their test score outcomes compared to the rest of, of Youngstown, Ohio, which is a very economically depressed area where we're significantly better, you know, so they have good outcomes, but um, it's an unexpected school, I think, that probably wouldn't make it into a lot of studies, but but really demonstrated how they love Jesus, they love kids, and they were willing to radically change who they look like as a school to achieve their mission with who God was bringing to them at their time. Lynn, thank you so much. Yeah, it's awesome being with you. Thank you, Eric.